it's one thing to know what to do. It's another thing to get yourself to do it. I just go. You can get all your ducks lined up in a row and then try and pinpoint shoot them, or you can get a shotgun and just start shooting. Welcome to the Aim and Audio Experience, where we talk life, entrepreneurship, common sense business, and living up to your fullest potential. Remember to subscribe and shout us out on social media if you're enjoying the show. We really do appreciate all your support and attention, and we welcome comments or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us cover. Now for today's episode. What is going on, podcast people? My name is Jonathan. I'm your host for the Aim and Audio Experience. And today we have a very special guest with us. His name is Don Masterangelo. He is the classic definition of a serial entrepreneur. Uh, he started over 20 companies. And interesting fact, and we're going to get into this later in the episode, but his commuter vehicle of choice is an airplane. So I can't wait for you to listen to the rest of the episode. Um, really, it was incredible. We got to sit down with Don in his co-working space in the Temecula area and just go over some of the businesses that he's had, the big wins, the big losses. And he provides such an incredible perspective for those who are looking to start their own company or maybe dream of uh, being an entrepreneur one day, or for those entrepreneurs that are mid-journey and are struggling with different things. And so um, he has so many incredible points that he brings up. Uh, we talk about the 80-20 rule, and I think there's so many nuggets of gold throughout this as far as ways to be successful and uh, ways to really accomplish a lot in your life. So I'm excited about releasing this. A little bit of housekeeping before we get started. We are recording some of these and putting them out on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube and type in Aim and Audio Experience, you're going to see some of the interviews. They are. Uh, it's fun to be able to have that video dynamic there. So if you watch videos on YouTube, we'd absolutely love for you to hop on over there. Leave us comments. Uh, hit me up on Instagram at John O'Aymin, J-O-N-O-A-Y-M-I-N, with any feedback, constructive criticism, heck, regular criticism. <laughs> um, in any case, without further ado, let's get to the episode. Don, thank you so much for allowing us into your space. This is a co-working space, but um, I appreciate you letting us into the space. My pleasure. Happy to have you guys here and happy to have a chance to talk with you. Yeah, well, we're we're <clears> excited too. Uh, I got connected with you because of this place. Uh, I have a company and my wife and I were looking for some local places. We have an office, but you know, sometimes we're either working from home or working remotely. And so we happened to be walking by it here in the mall area in Temecula. And if you're local to this area, I highly recommend that you check it out. It's It's an incredible space. But we, we looked you up and we were like, man, who started this? This is such a creative idea. Tell us a little bit about um, the space and what it is, and then we'll kind of get into who you are and some of the other sure. uh, things that, that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, called Parlay Cafe, and I've actually came up with this idea maybe 25 years ago when I was traveling a lot for business and my work uh, pretty much on an airplane in some city around the country every week and just looking for places to just crash and get caught up on email and work and so on. And one of the things that um, a frequent flyer has an advantage of is that you get all the points, right? So being a frequent flyer means you get to get upgraded to first class. You get to hang out in the first class lounge. Well, hanging out in the first class lounge is a great experience. And I always thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could kind of take this lounge and put it back at home and in, in kind of a retail environment and maybe combine that with a coffee shop. And this was actually long before co-working was a thing. But in my mind, I wanted to hang out there. Yeah. Co well, co-working is, I think everyone knows like the WeWork, right. uh, <clears throat> you know, model or whatever. And so that, yeah. yeah, but this is different. So how, explain the difference. Well, I'll explain the difference. But uh, <clears throat> since you bring that up, it's kind of interesting because WeWork 
has only been around for 10 years. It's an incredible success story. They're certainly the thousand pound gorilla in our space. But uh, they actually started when the recession hit in 2008. They actually started that business in 2009. And it was just two guys with the idea of trying to figure out how to repurpose some empty space in Manhattan. They built the first one by pounding nails together. And here we are 10 years later. They just did their IPO. They were valued at something like $47 billion, which is outrageous for a, a startup. But they really weren't the ones that pioneered the co-working idea. That had been around much longer than 10 years. And then you've got companies like Regis, et cetera, that have done, I guess, what's more considered executive suites and that kind of a thing. It's been around for many, many years. What WeWork did was they changed the vibe and they really focused on tech startups, mm -hmm. incubating tech startups and keeping getting them from, from a one-person to a three-person to a five to a ten. And, Which is know, the most challenging. I mean, yeah. for anyone who owns their own business out there, you know, like you're starting out by yourself and then it's like, who do I hire first? You right. know, and is everyone on contract basis? Yeah. When and do my employees getting come an in? office? Oh yeah. You know, signing up for an office and furnishing it. And how much space do I need? Signing the lease. Like, is exactly. your business going to last that long? You know, you're in the back of your head. Maybe sometimes your own worst enemy. Right. As far as that goes. Right. And so I actually heard on a, a podcast. You know how I built this podcast that uh, okay. featured WeWork about their story. Uh, heard a little bit more from the founder, and um, their average customer spends about three thousand dollars a month for space. So they're they're but what's different uh, since you asked that is what we work and other pretty much anybody in the co-working space does is they try and build large operations, a single large operation in a city or in a market. Whereas our concept is to build a lot of small operations in a retail environment mm -hmm. where we work and most co-working operations are in office environments, office buildings. I didn't really – I don't want to be in an office environment. I'm yeah. an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. I've been working, um, you know, building various businesses over the years, but I've been a solopreneur many, many times, working from home many, many times. Once you escape the cube, the last thing you want to do is go back to the cube. So true. Right? Yeah. So what we tried to do here is create an environment that caters to that type of person, the adventurous entrepreneur, work from home, traveling salesperson, you know, road warrior entrepreneur – but not so they feel like they're in the office. I wanted them to feel like they were at the first-class lounge at the airport. I love that. So we combined the advantages of co-working. <laughs> Excuse me. We don't have any permanent desks or dedicated desks or dedicated offices. Everything's a hot desk or a lounge seat. But it's comfortable and it's a great vibe. And the idea is that we think that there's a huge market for people who want to have an escape from the home office, but not necessarily replace the home office. That's and they don't want to be there eight to five, Monday through Friday. They just want to come in for a few hours here and a few hours there, feel like they belong. That's so true. And I think especially in this market, you know, we're out in the Temecula area. A lot of the homes, depending on where you live, the homes are, you can get a bigger home for a cheaper price right. generally than in the San Diego area or the Los Angeles area and certain in many parts of Orange County. Sure. And so here you have this area that people may likely have the space to have an office in their home, right. but it's totally that escape. You're right. I mean, yeah. with kids and with everything else. Barking dogs. Barking, yeah. You, doorbells ringing. You have to have yeah. that professional feel. Um, and so many people are looking to escape the nine to five and right. you're looking to do that. So the fact that you've really pioneered that. I haven't seen anything similar right. to it. And it's, I've used it quite a few times. I've been here with my team and 
It's great. I mean, the little con there's like a um, members lounge area and several different conference rooms similar to this. And right. you you know you pay. It's a day fee. So yeah, you can have a daily pass, um, or if you're going to use it frequently, then you can pay ninety five dollars a month and have unlimited access to the lounge. The conference rooms rent for $50 an hour, and then there's bulk pricing. And then we also have our training room, which we call the forum that holds maybe 35 people for group presentations or lunch and learns or investment opportunity presentations, trainings, anything along those lines. And one of the, we, we uh, came up with the idea, concept, and working on it for years, finally decided to do it. But we knew that um, once we got it open, that's when the learning would begin. It's only been open three months, <clears throat> and we're already learning things that we didn't see coming. Mm -hmm. One of the things we found is that there's really a few distinct types of users. There are people who just come in and use the lounge, and they don't do anything else. They just use the lounge, which is fine. It's, it's perfectly fine. But then we also have people who just come in and rent the conference rooms and never go in the lounge. Hmm. And then we have people who go in and use the training room but don't use the conference rooms or the lounge. And then we have some that use all of it. So <clears throat> as we grow – uh, we'll be making some fine-tuning. For example, in the lounge, one of the things that we've learned is we need more workspace and less lounge space because mm. everybody seems to gravitate to the work table. Towards the work table. Right, or the it's little bar. It's a cool bar. community. Yeah. It's a really cool vibe. I mean, that's right there, and it's it's spacious. The training room as well is pretty spacious. Yeah. Do, what did you anticipate going into it that maybe was a, I don't want to say a misconception or something that you learned in the process of yeah. being open to the public and seeing how they use the space? Well, here's a couple things. Um, one is we have a full service coffee bar here. It's right behind the window here. And uh, I mean, it's a full on espresso bar and we do smoothies and blended drinks and the whole bit. And um you know, it's an important part of the overall vibe, but we expected that there would be more business for people using the coffee shop than there is. And we found that we've created a little bit of confusion when people come to the space and don't know who we are. Sometimes they open the door and it, it just doesn't look quite right to them because what is this? Is this an office or is it a coffee shop or is it a cafe? And we actually see people open the door, look in and turn around and leave fearing that they shouldn't <laughs> be there. We're like, no, no, come back. So we've learned a little bit about presentation. We've changed a few things. We put a planter up on the front desk so it's a little bit more inviting. And we've also found out that that seems to only happen when there's a lull and there's no one here. But when people are here and they're sitting at the various tables, then people come right in. Because mm, they, they see yeah. how people are already using the space. And exactly. That, that makes sense. I mean, you kind of like, you know, the entrepreneurs may be mavericks, but still it's like, wait, am I in, am I in the oh. right location here? Yeah, exactly. It's a great location because we're in a, a, an actual shopping mall, not a strip center, but a shopping mall. And uh, I, I can tell you a little bit about how we ended up here because it, it is kind of an interesting story. I'd love to hear. Uh, when we started trying to find a location for the concept, we went to strip centers, you know, the typical strip center where, where normally you would find a coffee shop. But we actually had a hard time finding a landlord that wanted to let us in. Hmm. Now they'll all let us in, right? Yeah. They, because people don't have a lot of vision. It's one thing I've learned in general. Not a lot of people can see things the way they can be. They can only see what's right in front of them. Common trait of an entrepreneur is to have the vision to see beyond what is right there and be able to picture something in its completed form. Well said. Right? Yeah. And so uh, most people don't have that. And so a lot of the people that we would pitch the idea to as a potential landlord for us that, well, and it sounds like people will be hanging around all the time. We have limited parking. We don't want people staying. We want people. And I would try and explain, no, no, they're going to come for an hour or two and they're going to leave. It's going to be constantly turning over like any other coffee shop. No, no, they didn't get it. Um, in fact, maybe even more than some coffee shops because a lot of times people will post up at coffee shops for several hours. I mean, I've done sure. it. Sure. 
I did been, too. I've been three, four <clears throat> hours at a coffee shop, you know? So I think it's, I think it's, you're, you're right. Right. You're correct. So, so they actually didn't like the idea. Not that they didn't like the idea. They just, they were concerned that it would be a negative impact on their strip center, especially if they were highly limited in parking. The other thing that we found is that every strip center that has a coffee shop has exclusivity for the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't go in there if we had the coffee shop. So it was really interesting. But at the mall, uh, parking is a non-issue. And they love loiterers. Mm-hmm. The whole idea is anything we can do to get people to stay at the mall longer works. So uh, the mall absolutely embraced our concept, and and it's just been a it's been a wonderful thing because we get so much foot traffic here. That's how I discovered it. Right, we, you yeah, walked, we walked by. by, and you're right near <clears throat> Yard House here, right near the small parking garage. Right. It's ideal. I mean, you have to walk directly past here to, to get to anywhere. And, uh, and a great sideline of that is that because it's a retail environment, it doesn't feel like an office, which is what we wanted to accomplish. And uh, if somebody's working hard and they want to go get lunch, there's any number of places to eat right here. You know, you've got Cheesecake Factory and P.F. Chang's and Luna Grill and California Pizza Kitchen and Red Robin all within a one-minute walk. Luna Grill's been the go-to it's, for it, our team. our yeah. go-to, too, <laughs> yeah. They also like to cater. So when we have meetings and events in the forum, our training room, it's easy to arrange catering to provide food or uh, refreshments for. Say, so, hey, walk the, the bags over. It's, and it's they right just there. walk them over and they love doing it. I so, love it. A lot of wins. In fact, um, our, we already have our next two locations scouted out. They're both in similar type environments, one in Orange County and uh, one at Victoria Gardens at um, the mall in Rancho Cucamonga. That's incredible. That is so cool. Now, yeah. would do you have any plans for uh, kind of cross membership? Like, if you know you're paying the monthly, absolutely. Because I mean, that right away that goes for me. Yeah. So many companies now are either I, I think moving to a virtual workspace type environment, mm-hmm. but again, mm-hmm. you know, you have someone who's working from home, maybe doing customer service or whatever. Right. That's fine. But then if the dog's barking in the back, kids, same thing. So sure. being able to have that flexible space. Absolutely. So it's like a gym membership. If you're a member at one, you're a member at all. Parlay will be a chain. Our goal is to have a thousand stores. Wow, that's right? incredible. And so uh, going back to where I first had the version, uh, the vision 25 years ago, I wanted to be uh, a member of something like this. And wherever I might be traveling, I could find it. And that's where I would go. And it's that road word concept. I exactly. love that. That is yeah, so, so cool. That's the plan. I love it. Well, right. thanks. That's incredible. But <laughs> that's, that's not the end of your story. Mm-mm. When we first met... I shook this guy's hand and we, and, and I said, oh, you know, I'm really uh, looking forward to talking to you more. I'd love to interview you on my podcast. I'd love your space here. And he said, oh yeah, not a problem. You know, I, and then he just kind of casually mentioned that he flies to work. So then of course that was kind of a right. <laughs> question. And then yeah. asked a couple other questions and you've had multiple businesses, yeah. multiple startups, some successful ones. I'm assuming some failures as well. More failures than successes. Can That's you, the way it works. <laughs> yeah. Can you, <clears throat> can you tell us, um, take us back kind of how you started your entrepreneurial journey, um, your your path through life, start as early as you'd like. Okay. Well, geez. Um, I mean, it, co- it goes back to grade school when I wanted to make some money and, you know, off for the summer and how can I make some money? So I would just go out and canvas the uh, for yard work, doing yard work. And people hired me to do yard work. I grew up in Tucson where it's hot and nasty and there's lots of weeds. And, you know, so I would go out and just work. And then I ended up doing address painting. I came up with the idea. Somebody said something about an emergency stop and the police couldn't find the home or the ambulance because there was no address on the curb. So I went down to the hardware store and bought some stencils and some spray paint, black and white, and said, 
went door to door and said, hey, you know, you don't have your address on your curb. You need that for emergency. I'll put it on there for $20. And I made an address painting business. And then I did – that's cool. That's you know, awesome just stuff service. like that. Whatever I could come up with, I would buy and sell bicycles and parts and, you know, cars and things. I think I bought my first car when I was 14. Couldn't drive it, but I could work on it. Wow. And I liked working on cars, still do. I'm kind of a motorhead. Um, and then, uh, but that's you another, know, and that's another business that we have to get to. Yeah, eventually. we can talk about yeah. that. But, um, so I've always kind of, I guess, had the, the work ethic and the, um, desire to just go out and do whatever it takes. And I learned early on, I, I'm not a big guy or anything, but I, if, if it was time to help somebody move, I'm thinking, why am I moving more boxes than everybody else? I'm not bigger than everybody else. I'm just, I guess I just want to get the job done more than everybody else does. And that's when I really started to realize that there's a choice as to what you accomplish. You just make a choice. And I just chose to get the work over with mm -hmm. rather than stretch it out. Um, and that is, that's so true. That is a choice. It is there, a choice. There are, there is the easiest way to get from point A to point B, which is a straight line. And so mm -hmm. many people, sure, there are unforeseen things that come, that you come across, but right. there is <clears throat> definitely a way to kind of charge right through. Charge right through. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I started to learn early on and then I had several jobs. I worked in restaurants and that kind of a thing. And I can remember thinking. Out in Tucson? Yeah, okay. in Tucson, yeah. Hands was one of them. There was several mom and pop places. But I learned to work. You know, if you, if you want to learn how to deal with stress, go work in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. It's a high-pressure environment. Things happen real fast. You learn how to just focus and do one thing at a time until all the work is done. And so I think it's a great way to learn how to deal with stress. But I can also remember clocking in for work and then clocking out and having these thoughts as I was – as there were like downtime during work thinking, I just traded an hour of my life for $4. I can't get that hour back, and I have $4. There's got to be a better way. Mm -hmm. And this is back when I'm, you know, 18, 19 years old, realizing, I, I, is this my whole life? I'm just going to trade my time for dollars? That's not going to happen. There's got to be a better way to do this. And so— Was um, that kind of your awakening moment? It I mean, was, you know. Because you really—someone you you, you, can have entrepreneurial tendencies, but then you kind of— something clicks right. where you start looking at money and then time and kind of separating them. That right. sounds like that. Exactly. And so I really started moving and shaking, and um, I was actually managing one of the restaurants that I was working in. And, uh, you know, I'm just one of those people that was just all over the place, and I'm still in high school at this point. In the third quarter of my senior year, I finally went and met with my counselor, only to find out I wasn't going to graduate in my senior year. <laughs> I had just been, you know, I was a good student, always got A's. I didn't study. I just got things, you know, and— uh, was good at taking tests and that kind of thing. But faced with the idea that I wasn't going to graduate, uh, it's my own fault, right? But was I could— Was it just like classes or something? I was just missing to... a few credits or something like totally. that. And just, you know, uh, counselors didn't come and find me. It wasn't until I went and found them. It's my own fault, but it was too late. And so I ended up dropping out. And I never went back. So I, I went to the local junior college because my grandmother begged me to, and she couldn't stand the fact that I wasn't going to go to college. And I made it almost through one semester. And um, I just realized this is not for me. So <laughs> I basically just went to work. Nice. And uh, my next entrepreneurial venture was started that, then. And, and sorry, I want to ask yeah. a couple of questions about that. So was that scary at all first? And then second, did you have uh, influences in your family that either pushed you towards working and entrepreneurship or – pulled you back. I know a lot of people who may be watching this might be either in college or in high yeah. school saying like, 
oh, I'm not, maybe I'm not going to graduate, you know, maybe a similar position. So let me be clear. I'm not recommending that path for anybody. Of course. You should finish your high school, get your high school diploma, and I'll leave it up to you as to what what college um, means to you. So every, I've had lots of jobs over the years, VP of sales jobs, sales jobs, uh, management jobs. Every job I've ever had required a college degree. I didn't have a college degree. They hired me anyway because of the performance that I could offer. But not everybody should follow that path. Uh, nevertheless, you know, if I'm talking to entrepreneurs, it's not about the degree. It's about what you accomplish. So, you know, if you've got your degree and you're trying to figure out what to do next, we can talk about various things to do as an entrepreneur. Uh, today, and if, and if you don't have it and you're trying to determine where to go, we'll save that for another day. But there's plenty of room for people to uh, accomplish things and be successful. I, I often wondered why for so many years you didn't hear about the trades, you know, people doing plumbing work and electricians and all the things that are incredibly valuable and don't necessarily require a four-year degree but can make a tremendous living. And, you know, I had a GPS tracking business for years where all of my customers were companies that own fleets like plumbing companies and air conditioning contractors, et cetera. And a very big percentage of the customers were business owners who had started on the street and didn't have college degrees, but now owned a pest control business or a plumbing company or an electrical company. Wow. That and obviously scared to the successful. size to that they needed fleets to track right. or the GPS to track their vehicles. Exactly. Now they have 10, 20, 30 vehicles, but they started by driving a truck yeah. or being a pest control route guy. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It just depends on what your path is, you know? If you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a professor, then you need to have your degree. But that's not the only way to go out and make a living. I have a a horrible joke that I'll share with you because, you know, people ask me why I didn't go to college. They say, I think college is great. That's where the A students teach the B students how to work for the C students. Right? That is brilliant. And I'm I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that path. It just wasn't my path. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's yeah. it's interesting. There are some similarities. I'm smiling here because I'm thinking back to my own experience with college. And um, and I ended up graduating, but I took a very circuitous route to get there. Right. And school wasn't, school wasn't something that came naturally to me yeah. um, at all. I was not good at taking tests. I was way more social. And so I found myself, you know, graduating high school thinking, where do I go? go from here. Okay. I'll start at the junior college, but there was, wasn't really a set plan in my head. As far as that goes, I kind of just assumed that I would go to college and then I would just continue on and then I would get a degree and then someone would hand me a job right after I got my diploma and things would be good. So, and my own story, you know, goes a number of different ways, but I noticed it was when I switched up the schooling to be in a little bit of a different format that was better for me. And Mm. so that was the only way that I was able to graduate, but getting things done and really going in there, uh, that's something that. Right. And, and before we leave that, um, today with the technology we have and the abundance of ways that you can get your classes done and so on, there's no reason a person can't continue to pursue their degree and be an entrepreneur at the same time. That's I didn't so have true. that really available to me back then. That's so true. But, um, you know, there's a lot more flexibility. It means more work. It means spinning a little a few more plates, but that kind of thing doesn't, isn't daunting to me at all. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Okay. So you are, um, let's, let's go back to your story here. So you're managing, uh, you're kind of making that connection between like, I'm getting paid four bucks an hour. 
That's an hour of my life. Here's my $4. Where do you go from there? I mean, what, what was your first kind of so, like official Yeah, you asked maybe? me a little bit about my family and if there was any entrepreneurial going on there. My dad was a builder. Okay. And he was very entrepreneurial, but he just kept doing the same thing over and over. Sometimes the building industry, residential construction was a good business. Sometimes it wasn't. You've seen it over and over in the last few years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, recessions and so on. It's some, there's good times to be doing it and bad times. He went up, down, up, down, up, down over 30 years, but never left the building industry. What I learned from him, I learned a lot of my entrepreneurial you know, tendencies come from him, but I learned not to just rely on one industry and just do it over and over again. It, it just seemed crazy to me when I saw the pain that he went through when things didn't work out. That's cool that it didn't drive you away from entrepreneurship though. Yeah. It, I'm, I'm sure I drove him crazy. <laughs> I'm sure I drove him crazy, but no, it definitely didn't drive me away from entrepreneurship and his failures were painful, but his successes were glorious. Uh-huh. So, and I was attracted to that and I got that. And the older I get, the more I understand him, mm-hmm. right? The roller coaster and we probably all that. do with our dad. Yeah. But, uh, but my mom was also self-employed, yet I wouldn't, <laughs> excuse me, wouldn't call her an entrepreneur. Um, she was an electrologist, which is in the cosmetology industry. Okay. It's a permanent hair removal process. And so she worked in a studio by herself. Um, she had one associate that worked with her. She charged by the hour for the service. She made good money. And she did a, my parents were divorced when I was 11. My brother was 12. It was just the two of us. And um, so, you know, she did a great older, job. Older provide, brother? He's older okay, yeah. by a year. Uh, and she did a great job providing for us um, on her own through this business, being self-employed. Although I wouldn't exactly call her an entrepreneur because she just did that for 30 years. But the process that she did um, was painful. It, you know, the treatments were painful. You're actually applying an electric current to a hair to kill the hair and remove the hair one at a time. And she used to tell painful me- Painful for her or painful, painful for, for the, the customer? Pay, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a painful process. Um, she always told me, hey, if you could find a way to reduce the pain, we'd all be rich. Mm-hmm. So I set out to do it. And so when I was 17, I came up with this idea to blow a really finite cold stream of air right where she has to put the probe into a hair to electrocute it, basically, and offset the pain. I, and I actually patented that device. It's called the uh, Cool Air Comforter. And I created a company called American Electrolysis Laboratories. I had no idea what I was doing. And I engineered this device, and it basically had like an aquarium pump in it and a hose that came out and clipped on with a little nozzle to the probe that you hold. And it actually worked. It ha- did a great job of creating like this cool air sensation that offset, you know, the electrical current. Yeah. And I ended up selling those to electrologists all over the country through mail order, which wow. back then that meant I direct mailed a flyer to them and they filled it out with their credit card number and mailed it back. There weren't even fax machines and that, stuff. That is amazing. Right? And probably even at that point, the whole online or computer credit card processing, that was kind of cutting edge. Yeah, I mean, credit card terminals were over the phone lines. There was no internet yet. This is 1980. Oh, wow. Right? So we don't even have internet yet, right? That is So credit cards, you know, that was where you took the card and stuck it in the machine and went, right, and made an imprint of the card. Or through mail order, it was literally mailing it in. So we sold hundreds of these machines. And uh, then this was one of my early lessons. I mean, obviously didn't know what I was doing, but did pretty well and it was mechanically inclined, but there was a fault in the way we had designed the machine. And after a few months, the pump would come loose and start spinning around inside and basically destroy the machine. So what happened was 
I had hundreds of the machines out there. I'd collected all the money. I'd you know continued on, bought more parts, more stuff, building more machines. They started coming back. And when they started coming back, I didn't have the capital to deal with it. And all the refunds were being demanded by the charge card companies. Because you're, you're putting in all your capital back right. into, yeah, Exactly. Absolutely. So it was my first success and my first failure as far as being a real business is concerned. And I learned a tremendous amount from it. But I ended up actually going from there to becoming an electrologist because I'd gone through the process of thinking, hey, if I'm going to supply stuff to this industry, then I'll become certified so I can actually understand it better. And then I did that for about a year. And then I went to work for one of the companies that I was doing advertising with um, for the electrolysis company. And it was just wasn't like, my like thing. the direct mailer. Yeah, it was, a, was like the, the penny saver here. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> it was called the Tucson Shopper in Tucson. Okay. <clears throat> Owned by the same company, Hart Hanks Direct Marketing, which was a Fortune 500 company. And that's how I found sales. Mm. So basically, they rescued me from that business and allowed me to, to start something new where I actually went to work for them and went through a two week training program on how to become a salesperson. And that's how I broke into a six figure income that first year. And it was really amazing because in that two-week training program, back then, they were hiring for four positions, and they hired 10 people. And they told everybody they hired, only four of you are going to get territories. Six mm -hmm. of you aren't. It all depends on how you do in training. Oh, so they overhired. They overhired. Oh, nice. In a big way. Good, good People don't do that really anymore. Oh, you know? yeah. And you knew going in that there was a risk you wouldn't get it. Well, I, I wasn't about, you know, just my nature was, okay, well, I'm going to get one of those four territories. So I just... I was young, uneducated, right? And I just listened to everything they said in that two-week training program. And I can remember talking to the more established people during that two weeks. And they're like, ah, eh, you know, don't let, you know, you'll see. When you get out of there, you'll do your own thing. And, you know, we all do what we do. But I was too young and naive to do that. I just wanted to succeed. So I did what they said, mm -hmm. and I became a wild success. And then <laughs> so I realized listened to the I actually training. listened to the trainer, <laughs> did what they said, contrary to what all the mediocre players were doing, and become the number one guy there. And I stayed wow. there for several years and enjoyed it, became a manager there, um, did a lot of various things after that. But I learned that there is a process that separates people that are successful from unsuccessful, certainly in sales, right? The 80-20 rule that you mentioned earlier, Pareto's law. And, uh, you know, in any sales force, you've got 20% that have 80% of the sales and 80% that have 20% of the sales. Why is that? Because what the 20% that are at the top do is different than what the 80% do. And I learned back then that if you want to be a truly successful person, you're going to have to do a whole lot more than the 80% to be part of the 20%. Did you learn that? Did you learn that kind of as a theory then? Or did you, um, did you kind of realize later that that's what you were learning? Yeah, um, it's a little bit of both. Later, I actually wrote a book on it. It's called okay. Ready, Set, Sell, How to Get from Zero to Sales Hero in 90 Days. It was a number one bestseller on Amazon 10 years ago when wow. it came out. The book is endorsed by both Jeffrey Gittimer and Brian Tracy. Okay. Wow. So you can find it. It's on Amazon. We still sell bunches of them every month. But um, I went back at that point. So now I'm about 40 at that point. And I went back and said, okay, I'm going to write a book that helps people that um, are where I was and, you know, when I was about 20 years old, just starting out in sales to navigate all this garbage and just focus on the action. So it's not a technique book. It's an action-oriented book. Set your goals, figure out how much money you want to make, reverse engineer your comp plan to figure out exactly how much you'd have to sell to make that much money. And then figure out using Pareto's law or the 80-20 rule, how many people you have to call on to make X amount of sales to make that much 
revenue so that you can have your goals, mm-hmm. right? It's a purely mathematical plan, but you have to make the choice as to whether or not you're willing to do it. And 80% of the people who read my book aren't willing to do the work, but 20% are. So we go right back to the 80-20 rule afterwards. That's so cool. And I don't know, something that I'm, I don't know if what you all will be taking from this necessarily, but what I'm getting is some very consistent principles that I've seen and that you've kind of, as you've been describing your life to us, that repeat themselves over and over and over again. And that is taking action. Absolutely. You're an, you're an action taker, which is incredible because a lot of people, um, you're right, you know, maybe even they would buy your book and not read it. Right. Or read half of it. Yeah. But or read it and not do it. Or read it and not apply it. But it's interesting, like you not only in that training, you listened to the whole thing and then you applied it. Right. But at any of the different things that you did, I mean, going back to the electrology uh business, right. you know, you didn't stop and figure out the perfect design and make sure that you were completely, it was perfect and everything. You went in, you executed, you got it done. You right. learned something. It was a failure, a, a failure sure. in a way, but really it wasn't a failure because you were able to learn like, okay, I might need to tweak some things next time. And if you wanted to stay with it, I'm sure you could have found a way to you know, fix the error, but you got in and, and you executed on it rather than waiting. And I think right. so many people especially nowadays, I mean, we don't, we have a lot of advantages that you didn't have. Sure. And with technology, you know, you can just Google something. I have an iPad here and I can just Google it. Amazing. And I can yeah. learn how to do it. You didn't have that and no. you executed. And so many people get stuck in, let me plan out and I have to make sure it's perfect. And right. by the time they're done, they're tired. Learn by trial and error. Just take action. And, and you said take action, but that's what I say all the time. If you really want to differentiate yourself from everybody else, stop talking about it and go do it. Yep. Take some action. Not tomorrow, today. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, one of the things in the book is, is talking about creating an action plan, and then next step is take action. It's one thing to know what to do. It's another thing to get yourself to do it. I just go. Yeah. Right? And you can get all your ducks lined up in a row and then try and pinpoint shoot them, or you can get a shotgun and just start shooting. Exactly. Right? And that's pretty much what I do with everything. And, and looking back now at all the va- various things I've done, it's a lot of things, but I'm not afraid to just do a lot of things because I know that the 80-20 rule applies to everything, mm-hmm. you know, Pareto's law. And you can't start a business and expect it to be successful and then – if it fails, say, okay, well, I guess I wasn't meant to do business. That was one. Mm-hmm. You need to do 10 to find two that are good. So true. So why would you consider yourself a failure when the first – how bold are you to assume your first business is going to be a success? Mm-hmm. What are the chances of that? It's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't beat yourself up. But you got to take chances and you got to move on. And um, I can't tell you how many times I've found myself on the ground, you know, bloody with my ribs kicked in and somebody's foot on my throat and in debt and trying to figure out what happens next. And you're just ready to be done with it. But then you just shake it off and you get up and you go do it again. Mm-hmm. And you have all the wisdom now and the experience and you know, you won't fail like that again. Well, or maybe not. You know, I shut down a business last year that we started from scratch and almost uh, within six months realized it was not sustainable. And, you know, there were certain things that happened, insurance reasons, and we didn't have any major mishaps or anything, but we could see the writing on the wall that it wasn't going to fail or that it wasn't going to succeed. Mm -hmm. And so I immediately pulled the plug on it, Mm -hmm. right? Because I'm also not averse to taking that kind of action. You have to pivot. Mm -hmm. You have to learn to roll with the punches. And in the early days, I thought it was 
a problem that I had, uh, a dysfunction, because a, a business that I would start would start out doing one thing, and then we'd have to swing to the left to roll with the punches and swing to the right and swing back to the middle. And people around me would say, what are you doing? It's so chaotic. You don't know. I'm, I'm like, but I'm learning and I'm changing. No, you just got to see it through. But I don't want to be the captain of a ship that's sinking and just keep it on course as it goes down into the water. <laughs> I want to try and miss the iceberg, yeah. right? And now today I hear all kinds of teachings and various books and, you know, whatever that very clearly say, hey, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you better be willing to pivot. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are doing tech startups today and software programs and so on. You know, some of the, the, the most amazing successes you see out there started as something totally different and ended up, you know, something amazing. Slack is a great example. Look into that story a little bit. I don't but know the background. I have to look something into that. totally different when it started, and now it, it's this amazingly successful thing. But that company was two to three months away from uh, running out of cash and shutting down. But they had developed an internal communication software for their other venture they were doing, and they thought maybe we can pivot and turn this into something. So they went to the v, the venture capitalists and said, "Can we take the remaining cash we have and pursue this?" And that became Slack. Wow. With two months of runway left to go. Wow. That's right? incredible. So you got to be willing to pivot. And so, you know, the, in summary of all of that, it's about taking action both on the good side and the bad side and just getting up and going again. You just expect the failure, embrace the failure. You cannot succeed without failure. Mm -hmm. I love that. So that's <laughs> so true. Uh, okay. So, so we, you went sales. And then yeah. you said, you mentioned the GPS business. So at what point? Um, that was down the road. I've had 20, this is my 20th business, oh, right? Wow. Two or three of them have been really successful. Okay. And the rest have been either moderately successful or absolute disasters. Okay. Uh, and some were bigger than others. Seems right? like you're then. following the 80-20 rule then. Well, there it is. I mean, bit. I don't have any control over that, huh, right? Enough. That's going to happen. So I'm just willing to embrace that and just do what I have to do to find the stuff that works, mm -hmm. right? Um but uh, so the GPS business, what happened there back in about 2007 or so, I had fallen into that business in 2001. Okay. Um, it was new technology at that point. I had just sold a direct mail franchise company. Okay. Uh, if you're familiar with MoneyMailer or Valpac as an example. Okay. okay. They have an envelope with a bunch of full color coupons in there from the carpet cleaner and the chiropractor. It's and all the, the locals. Yeah, all the local businesses. Those are national companies that sell franchises and so on. I um, went into competition and built a company called PowerMail, and uh, we went into the Tucson market where there was already a Valpac and a money mailer, and we basically just mailed twice as many homes twice as often as they did with twice as many salespeople, and we put the hurt on them big time. Nice. Hurt one of the franchise companies really badly, and then we opened one, uh, several in Phoenix, and then I actually franchised the company and sold five franchises. So we were the franchisor. We had five franchisees. About that point, Money Mailer came along and said, we need to take these guys out. And they made me an offer to actually buy the company. Mm -hmm. And I sold the company and all my franchisees became Money Mailer franchisees. Wow. So I was you know, free at that point trying to figure out what to do next. And I found, fell into the GPS tracking business. Was that exit <clears throat> your, something that you wanted to do or kind of look to do eventually? Did you build it? Cause I know some people <clears throat> kind of build, they'll start something and then they'll create it to sell it to, for yeah. that exit. It wasn't, it wasn't that way. And not to get too fragmented, I made the mistake of taking on a partner along the way. Mm -hmm. And I've done it a couple of times now. And it's one of the things that I'll just point out, you know, for anybody who's watching or listening to this, 
it's not a viable way to go in mm-hmm. most cases. Most partnerships don't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a variety of reasons. But um, I went to a SCORE meeting when I was about 19. Mm-hmm. SCORE is the Service Corps of Retired Executives. The SBA puts it on. It's a mm-hmm. bunch of volunteers of retired guys that have, I'm probably getting pretty close to being on SCORE now. And uh, the one thing they said in that, so you want to start a business seminar, was don't do partnerships. Mm-hmm. And I wish I'd listened to them. So I'm, it's not my advice. It's anybody who ever has been there. And I, I don't want to offend anybody who has a partnership or anything like that. But in general, they don't work out. And so I have a few, rule, few rules that my wife and I have for any venture we get involved in today, but one of them is no partners. Mm. That one was a partnership, and I was forced to sell the business to get rid of the partnership. Mm. So no, it wasn't intended. Okay. I would have liked to have built that business, mm. uh, but I couldn't do it because of that. So lesson learned. Well, and it was probably a lesson learned, but then also a success because you got the exit, yeah, which was good. I did get it, and it and it gave me the opportunity to stumble into this new enterprise, new business that I had nothing to do, no experience with. You know, I've been, been involved in printing and advertising and that kind of thing. Now I'm doing GPS tracking for fleet vehicles, uh, but it was a new technology at the time where you could merge wireless data, the internet technology, and the GPS system, and create a productivity tool for. Again, the air conditioning companies and the plumbing companies and so on. Put a device in each of their vehicles, give them a username and password. It's a software as a service Mm -hmm. and uh, a monthly subscription model. They can log in. They can see all their trucks, where they are, every stop they make, what time they start working, what time they stop working. Unbelievable return on investment type productivity tool. So I um, stumbled into that because my brother-in-law had a small trucking company and my brother's girlfriend at the time had started working for one of these GPS tracking companies. And I put the two of them together and he bought the the product and it changed his, I mean, literally changed his business. So they needed a salesperson in the Southwest. I'm still in Tucson at the time. So I took the job. Within a couple of years, I became their uh, VP of sales. And then I got recruited over to another company as their VP of sales. And I was with them for three years. Then I wrote my book And, you know, just because of the way things work out and perceptions and so on, they didn't like it that I wrote this book that was a sales book, even though I'm the VP of sales, and they let me go. So I had this strong six-figure income, uh, and all of a sudden, the next day, I had nothing. My kids are 10 and 12. Oh, and by the way, it's 2007, right before the crash of 2008. So uh, basically what happened was, you know, we got the, like everybody else, we got the rug pulled out from under us. It just happened to us about six months or eight months before everybody else. So <laughs> oh then the crash happened, right? And we're trying to figure out what are we going to do next? I said, well, look, you know, we're going to have to start over again, honey. You know what that means, right? It's going to be 90 days where I start something and you're not going to see me for a couple months because I'm going to be out in the field just killing it. Let's let's stick with this GPS business. This is a good business, but let's do it on our own mm-hmm. so no one can pull the rug out from under us. And we decided to move to Hawaii. You know, my kids were 10 and 12. We were sick of the desert. And I said, let's move somewhere fresh and new. You know, where would you like to go? My wife said, I'd like to go somewhere. It has a little humidity. I'm kind of tired of how dry everything is here. I said, I want to get out of this sizzling heat Mm -hmm. and go somewhere where the flying would be amazing. I'd love to be by the ocean. And, uh, you know, my kids were pretty much open to anything. So we ended up just deciding to go to Hawaii. When did the flying start? Because I know that you said that's been a lifelong passion. Okay, so. uh, It's been at least. Yeah, so the flying, um, when I was a kid, I used to dream about flying, like flying. 
Mm, okay, right? yeah, like yourself. Uh, lucid dreaming and that kind of thing. And uh, it's a common thing among pilots. It's also a common thing about, among entrepreneurs, by the way, to actually dream that you can fly. And I would dream, you know, that I'm in a crowded area and I would just be like, oh my gosh. And I would just kind of jump into the sky and fly over them and just fly. So I always wanted to fly, this is like in my teenage years. And then I learned about ultralights. Uh, they kind of were they came out in the late 70s, early 80s, where it's this Dacron wing. It's an airplane that weighs 200 pounds. has a two-stroke engine in it. You know, it's open air. And I thought, oh, that, that just looks like I've got to do that. This is an example of just taking action, right? Um, I was mechanically inclined. I'm, at this point, I'm probably 21, right? Okay. No, I don't have any money. Just working through things, trying to figure it all out. And um, I had built this little Myers-Banks student buggy for like $400. I, I was selling advertising at the time and I bought the body from a dentist who was one of my advertising customers that had it and bought a beater Volkswagen, took the engine and stuff out of it, put it in there, hand painted the whole thing. And then I put an ad in the paper and said, uh, Myers Manx dune buggy, $3,000 or trade for ultralight airplane. And sure enough, somebody called Wow. and we made the trade and I learned to fly in this ultralight airplane Wow, 30 years ago. And I've been flying ever since. I've never had any ambition of flying for a profession. It was mm-hmm. I, I like to fly for the joy of flying. Mm-hmm. And um, I learned to fly in that. Actually crashed it when the propeller fell off. Didn't get <laughs> substantially hurt, just covered with cactus. And then two years later, finally got enough money to actually – well, the way I learned to fly was I started a printing business. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends who was my mentor at the advertising company that gave me that great training program, her husband was a pilot. They bought a flight school. And they renamed it, so they needed to redo all the printing because they changed their logo and their name. So I did all the forms and the letterhead and the brochures, and we traded. We did a trade for printing versus the flying lessons, and I got my pilot's license in three months, flying five days a week for three months. Wow. 25 years old, 26 years old at that point. And, um, you know, I don't know if I ever would have been able to pull it off otherwise. And now I've been flying since recreationally, but it's always been my passion. So you and for anyone who's listening, so Don flies. He flew here this morning. He's mm-hmm. He actually has a fantastic little video on the uh, French Valley Flying Circus, which is another company of his. Right. But French Valley Flying Circus, if you want to check it out, frenchvalleyflyingcircus.com. If you go to the About Us section, um, you can see a bunch of different stuff. But I mean, he has an airstrip that's right near his house yeah. and he takes off and there's one here locally. So yep. I live your- in a residential air park uh, about 35 miles from here and my house backs up to the airstrip. I've got a couple hangars right there. So my airplane is my car basically. And then we have an office at the French Valley Airport right over here. It's about a 45 minute drive or about a 10-minute flight. <laughs> so awesome. whenever possible, I just fly into work in the morning. And then when I'm done here, I drive back to the airport and fly home. That's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's And I love it because I'm always either thinking about flying or flying. That's my passion. It's what drives me. Flying is an expensive hobby. Mm-hmm. And I have five airplanes that all have different purposes, mm-hmm. uh, mostly recreational. But that's what I do. I fly every day. What's the longest range Oh, the longest range plane I have, you know, it can probably go for about four hours at 200 miles an hour. So it can go about 800 miles. I'd have to figure out exactly where that is. But, like, could you get to Arizona? Oh, yeah. I can get to Arizona in in an hour and a half. Oh, wow. You have Tucson, Phoenix, Prescott. Okay, cool. Las Vegas is an hour. 
That's awesome. That's cool. Uh, so are these all, what, what different types of planes are they? Any passenger? Is this yeah. the so, sort of so, thing? Well, I have a powered paraglider, which okay. is where you wear the motor on your back and it's a, like a parachute wing and you take off on your feet. Uh, next step up from that is a Quicksilver, which is like very much like the ultralight that I learned to fly in. It's every bit as much as what I hoped it was, and I still have one, and, and it's actually probably my favorite airplane. Okay. Not the most expensive by any means, but my favorite. Then from Why there, is that? Just, it's, it's, it's open air. It, it feels – the powered paraglider and the ultralight actually are the closest to feeling like I did when I was a kid, being able to just walk into the sky. Mm-hmm. And so they're as close to truly flying as I think you can get. I like that. Why I like it so much. Then this yellow plane that you just saw, the biplane, um, that's a Great Lakes. It's a 1929 design built in the 80s. Just a graceful, barnstorming, open cockpit, you know, traditional style plane for aerobatics. And then we have a uh, Bushcat, the little zebra stripe Mm -hmm. plane, which I use to commute. And then a Cessna Turbo 210, which is a six passenger uh, traveling airplane. Okay. So the family, (laughs) take take the family. And you said you have two kids? I have two kids. You know, they're getting older now. They're 21 and 23. But uh, we have a place up in Big Bear, and we can literally get in our plane with the kids and the dogs um, from our backyard and be in our house in Big Bear within a half hour. <laughs> wow. That is incredible. That's amazing. That is so cool. It's, any any uh, airplane enthusiasts in the family? My son is also a pilot. Okay. He's 21. He actually soloed an airplane before he soloed a car. Wow. And he got his pilot's license when he was 16 or 17. Wow, and that's shares incredible. pretty much the same passions. Very cool. Yeah. That's incredible. Okay, so we totally had a, a little diversion there. Yeah. Um, we were talking about your entry into the GPS business. Yeah. So the GPS business, I worked in the corporate side. The book came out. They let me go. We decided to pick up stakes and move to Hawaii. Um, the book did very, very well, and I really wanted to become the next Zig Ziglar or Tony Robbins or whatever. Did you have a passion for that, uh, helping oh, other entrepreneurs? Absolutely. Did a lot okay. of speaking, did a lot of training, and I have this system that I built. The problem was it was 2008, mm-hmm. and that was a really tough time to start a training business, right? Uh, and my kids are 10 and 12, and they kept telling me they like to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had to find a way to feed them, you know, and we, we took a little bit of money we had left, and we made this amazing move, you know, from Arizona to Hawaii. So I just immediately jumped into the GPS tracking business there. It was something I was familiar with. I created a company called Hawaiian GPS. It was just me. And I went out and called on fleet owners in Hawaii, just showing up, you know, don't know the culture, don't know anything, but I had the passion and I had some experience in the business and I knew how to sell. And I was selling a great product that people needed and it was underrepresented there. Um, So I called the business Hawaiian GPS and I went out and I got one customer and then I had two customers and then I had three customers. And over a period of uh, two years, we got to the point where I had 200 customers and 2,000 units all paying a recurring monthly subscription, had made a name for ourselves there. And at that point, Verizon Wireless and AT&T and T-Mobile and Sprint were all trying to sell that similar product using partners that they had on the mainland, as we called it in Hawaii, you know, Mm. one in Minnesota, one in Florida, one whatever. And if they came in and talked to a company that needed GPS and they've got their wireless business, they'd say, oh, well, we can help you get GPS uh, through this partner in Minnesota. But I would show up. Mm-hmm. I'm the local guy. You're there. Right. You're in I'm town. There, You're right I, there. Yep. And I would say, look, you know, I've been in this business for seven years, mm-hmm. although new 
for my own business, mm-hmm. but I'd been in the industry for seven years. I'm here. Here's a list of all my customers in Hawaii that you can call. Be sure and get a similar list from the Sprint guy mm-hmm. or the Verizon guy. And I won every one of those deals mm-hmm. because, you know, they don't mind calling their competitors. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great culture where, you know, they might be competitors, but they'll still talk. Yeah, absolutely. See what see what they can learn from each yes, other. Yes, of course. Or whatever you know, is working. Yeah. Or whatever. Anyway, it worked out really well. It was a great business. But then Verizon Wireless called me one day, a really enterprising young man that was a major account rep at Verizon. He said, Don, I'm your competition at Verizon. I'm <laughs> tired of you kicking our ass. I love it. Is there a way we can work together? And that phone call opened the door to a partnership between my little company and Verizon Wireless in Hawaii. We no longer were fighting against each other. We'd show up at the customer together and say, we're partners. Mm -hmm. Little did I know that the agreement that we put together, which was their agreement, um, was not limited to Hawaii. So when we started having tremendous success together, all of a sudden all these machine, as you call them, machine-to-machine activations were happening in Hawaii. Hawaii kind of rolls up and reports to Northern California. Northern California gets on the phone with Hawaii and says, where are all these machine-to-machine activations coming from? Oh, it's this guy, Don, Hawaiian GPS. You know, he's selling like crazy, and we're working together. And he said, get Don on the phone. So I get on the phone with him. Of course, I come from the corporate world and the whole GPS thing and all that. Next thing I know, I'm on an airplane to Walnut Creek in Northern California, meeting with Verizon and expanding our relationship uh, beyond Hawaii. And the reason that it happened wow. is that This is probably an important caveat here. Um, The standard in the industry at the time was it was about $300 per truck to put the device in. And then it was $30 or $40 a month per truck for the service. And most people required a three-year contract. So if you had 10 trucks, it was $3,000 to get them installed. Mm-hmm. 10 times 300. Yep. And then it was, you know, three or $400 a month and you had to sign a three-year contract. He didn't even know if it was going to work yet. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. So they really made you put a lot up front. Well, to yeah. Even get in the- I mean, we made them do it. We, yeah. all of us in the business required that of our customers. Industry standard. Okay. But I'd been in the business seven years and I had a good friend who um, had applied a new model to the internet service provider business where this is where, you know, in remote areas uh, and you can't get internet service, they do the little antenna on the hill and then you have a little antenna in your roof and they give you internet service. Um, and they had a similar issue where the device that you needed to put in the house was four or $500 and people couldn't afford to spend four or $500 to get internet. So he created a financing program where he leased all the equipment to the internet service provider so they could turn around and say, hey, it's $69 a month and we'll provide the modem. Which is exactly what most people do nowadays with their right. phones or anything else. It's what That's they do incredible. with anything else. So he helped me to understand that I could take that model and apply it to the GPS business. This is what we did in Hawaii and why, and part of the reason it worked so well is we said, listen, instead of $300 and a three-year contract, it's $39.95 a month, all-inclusive. We'll own the device. We'll put it in your truck for as long as you're a customer. There's no contract. You're not going to cancel unless I blow it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to re-earn your business every month. Mm-hmm. No risk on your part. How could they say no? You can't, yeah. You can't say no. So that's- I have no fleet and I'm ready to sign up. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> I love it. And um, I learned that from Jay Abraham. I don't know if you're familiar with Jay Abraham, but he's a marketing guru from way back when. And one of the things he taught was get out of the box on your pricing model and don't be so restrictive because people get screwed by customers, right? And then you create all these policies and procedures to make sure that you can't get screwed again. 
So what you don't realize is that two or 3% of the people are out to get you. They're going to screw you, right? But 97% aren't. So you end up creating company policies to try and protect you against the 3%, but you're actually making it really hard for the 97%. So I learned that from him and said, I have to simplify the process. Because what he said was, no matter what you put in place, the 3% are still going to find a way to screw you, mm-hmm. so right? True. So just let it go and you know, trust humanity a little bit and create your offering so it's easy to do business with you. So when we did that, we exploded. Then, because of that unique position that we had uh, in pricing, the Verizon um, entity em- <coughs> embraced it. And we started working with the Verizon teams in Northern California, and then it spread like a virus all across the U.S. Next thing you know, we had 3,000 reps from Verizon selling our product from coast to coast. And that's how we ended up moving back here because the business was growing so fast, it was getting hard to manage it from Hawaii. Hawaii. So we actually landed here, um, found a place where I could put my airplane in the backyard. My wife could have her horses in the backyard. Um, You know, our kids were high school age at that point, so it was a good time to make it happen. And uh, I spent the next two years working with Verizon just – blowing it out, and then eventually sold that company to a larger competitor. So that was really my biggest enterprise-style success of anything I've done. Everything else I've done up to then was pretty much, you know, a successful mom and pop or something cool, or I sold a couple franchises. But that was really the first time that I built an enterprise. Wow. It just, I mean, but you were continually innovating. You were ongoing, looking for way, and you were action oriented. So you're putting all these pieces together. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. That is amazing. A lot of pivoting. So, so, <laughs> so then where? So here you are. You know, you have the spot, the airplanes, combining a lot of your passions. You're getting ready to exit. You do exit. What do you do after that? I mean, are you? Do you just decide, hey, I'm going to go for a nice flight? And well, I, I tried that for a while, but I'm sure you this sleep is a, in a bit. Yeah, I mean, I did all that for about a year. Okay, I stayed with the company I sold to for a year. Okay, in and the transition. Then, yeah, yeah, with the transition and everything. Long year, you know. Once you've been an entrepreneur, it's really hard to work for somebody else. But they were good people, and you know, we we both did what we needed to do. And then I tried to just enjoy it and retire for a while. But, you know, I'm only 56. Um, How long ago was this, the exit? Three years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's only been three years. And uh, so one year went by. And then uh, during that next year, I tried to just chill out. And I, you know, I'm not capable mm-hmm. of doing that. And I wanted to create. And I, I, I still felt like I needed to do something, maybe in one more big one, mm-hmm. right? Um, I want to live a long time. I'm trying to be healthy. And uh, so even though that was a nice big win, I don't know that it was big enough to say, I don't need to do anything anymore. And I'm not even sure if that was the case that I wouldn't feel like I still needed to do something else. Was it a big win uh, money-wise or freedom-wise or for your, I don't want to say ego, but like how you were measuring yourself, like a lot of validation of years of pain and hard work? I think my goal from when I was in my early 20s was to build a company and sell it. Mm -hmm. A real, build it from scratch, a real enterprise and sell it. That would be like, you know, the bit that would be just the thing if I could accomplish. So I did that, but I also got a lot of respect from uh, the people involved. The book, uh, although I didn't get to go down that path quite like I wanted to because of the timing, has opened so many doors and given me so many so much credibility. All that stuff combined, now um, I feel like uh, I've accomplished most of what I wanted to accomplish. I just don't want to be done. Yeah, and now. 
everything I'm doing is on my bucket list. Mm-hmm. This enterprise that we're sitting in. You said 25 years in the making. How 25 years in the making. I've been that. thinking of doing this for 25 years. And so now, you know, with everything else kind of out of the way, and I'm just thinking, what can I do that's important? The other uh, footwear product that I'm involved in is also something that's it's important. It means something. It matters. Tell us a little bit about that because I thought yeah. I th- found that was fascinating when I looked. Right. So um, about online. a year ago after selling the business, we bought a, a small condo in Hawaii. It's nothing fancy, but, you know, it's uh, it's there because I, I miss being there. You know, we came here for business, but I like to be there. I want to spend a lot of time there. So we bought a little one-bedroom condo in uh, Hawaii in Maui on the beach. And um, I have a uh, – I guess an affliction or whatever you'd call it, called leg length discrepancy. That means one of my legs is shorter than the other. It's a very common thing. But my right leg happens to be about almost a half inch shorter than my left leg. Mm -hmm. And it's a very common thing. About 20% of the people have it in one form or another, you know, to what degree. And But it's easily treatable. You wear a, a lift in your shoe. You put a little wedge in your shoe. Uh, that equals whatever the leg length discrepancy is. So I was diagnosed by my chiropractor about 10 years ago with horrible back pain. You've got leg length discrepancy. You need to wear a lift in your shoe. And you didn't know that prior? No, I didn't. No, I just had back back pain. Back pain, yeah. Yeah. All right. This is a pretty common, you know, story that people have that that have it. Um, But once you have it, then you're in pretty good shape, except if you want to wear sandals. And you're in Hawaii. I mean, you have to wear, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, you're not going to not wear sandals in Hawaii or mm-hmm. look at where we live here in Southern California or Arizona or Florida or anywhere in the summer, right? Those degrees, of us who have leg length differential, we, we want to wear sandals. So basically what happened is a, about a year ago when I was spending time at the condo fixing it up, I was there for about a week and I wore my sandals for a week without a lift. I came home in agony and I thought, dang it. Somebody ought to invent some sort of solution for sandals for people with leg length discrepancy. And, you know, light bulb went off. Yeah. And I really— Somebody's me. (laughs) It's me. So I started doing a lot of research and, you know, Googling and trying to find out. I I would have been happy to just buy them if somebody made them, but nobody makes them. Hmm. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I started looking, how would you do it? Well, you know, you could—maybe you could just make sandals in various heights and then— you know, if somebody's left foot's higher than their right foot, then they can order this combo or this combo or whatever. And I started looking into that, and I thought, well, I've done patent before. So I got a hold of a patent attorney, and he did a patent search on it and said, interestingly enough, this is clear. And so we created a company called Jacked Up Footwear, and I started researching uh, footwear manufacturers. It happened to be China. It's really kind of the only choice. 90%, 97% of all footwear manufactured uh, and it's sold in the United States is made in China. And so um, found a great company there to work with. We did some prototyping and basically started the process of patenting it and uh, developing the prototypes. And here we are a year, literally a year later. I started this project a year ago, May. It's July. Mm-hmm. And the patent was just issued a few weeks ago okay. for Jacked Up Footwear to – uh, offer, on that. Thank you very much. And that is to be able to offer um, footwear in various heights for the specific purpose of overcoming leg length discrepancy. So right now we're just doing sandals, but um, we did a initial production run. I did a Kickstarter campaign for fun. I actually pitched it to Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did they like it? I, I got through three rounds on Shark Tank. It wow. wasn't really about the investment. It was kind of another fun. bucket list item. I always wanted to pitch something to Shark Tank. <laughs> I love right? it. And so I got a chance to do that, and I went through three rounds with them and then didn't make it further, but it was a, a really enjoyable experience to do it, and I'm glad I did it. But then Is I it, just— that's uh, just rounds of pitching? 
to different, I mean, no, um, I made it through the first round. Okay. Uh, then had to do a whole bunch of other stuff for the second round, video presentation, more research, fill out a 97-page document. Then you go to the third round. And then if you made it to the fourth round, then that's about when you would start getting taped for the show and that kind of thing. But I, I didn't quite make it that far. Mm, okay. But it was still a great experience. Absolutely. Right? And, um, you know, and in the end, I'm probably better off not going that route anyway because because it wasn't really about the investment. It was about the process. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed it very much. And I wouldn't hesitate to do it again with something else. So uh, recently, I just placed the first production order of 5,000 pairs. Um, and they're being produced right now. And they'll arrive here in September, end of September, beginning of September. And we now have a website called jackedupfootwear.com where anybody who has leg link discrepancy and wants to wear sandals can just go to the site and order a pair of sandals that uh, – emulates their lift and they're good to go. That is incredible. Are, yeah. I mean, are you offering this to chiropractors? And, well, so, uh, to the end user, of course, consumer, of but course? just last week I got an order from a chiropractor in Phoenix, in fact, and he sent me a nice message and said, Hey, uh, I just want to tell you, first of all, awesome. <laughs> and I'm a chiropractor in, uh, in physical, we have a physical therapy practice in chiropractic here in Phoenix and I have leg length discrepancy. And so I'm ordering your sandals. And so I called him and I asked him, you know, how, how did you hear about it? He said, well, actually, I recently diagnosed another one of my patients with leg link discrepancy, 16 millimeters. He went out and found you, mm. told me about you. And so now I'm ordering for myself. And we got into a conversation. So chiropractors, orthopedic surgeons, um, physical therapists, podiatrists are all going to be a, a good sphere for us to, to work with. Because they're treating people that have this in, and they diagnose this all the time. But one of the other things that I learned after I kind of got started is that, you know, all the people who get hip and knee replacements, it's a common side effect after oh. you get a hip or knee replacement to end up with leg length discrepancy, even though you didn't have it before. Mm. Kind of obvious why that might happen. Yeah. Right. But you wouldn't think of that. You don't think about reverse, that yeah. going in. Right. But uh, so, so it turns out that the market is bigger than I thought and will continue to get bigger because. More and more of those surgeries are happening all the time as they become less expensive, mm. which just is going to create more market for this product. Which, honestly, I'm not even worried about making a million dollars with this product. I just want to do it because I solve my own problem. I like to help other people. So, it, But it ends up being something after it's lucrative all. lucrative, too. That's, yeah. Wow. So that's, that's a cool one. That's amazing. Man, I mean, I don't, this is, this is incredible. <laughs> Thank you, you. You're like an iceberg, you know, there's like this on the surface. And yeah, you yeah, a lot going on. So much. What, um, share with us, and you've kind of described along the way some of the failures that you had with the successes. Uh, share with us, you know, if you're talking to someone who is 20, let's say 21, 22, maybe they're just graduating college. Right. Um, I, I have a sister and a cousin, uh, you know, a couple cousins, and they're kind of in this place in life where they're figuring out what they want to do. They don't really know. They're not super passionate about one thing or another. Maybe they're overthinking it. Like, yeah. you know, how, you know, how do I match the life that maybe I was brought up with, with the life that, you know, I'm able to provide for myself. And this transition between really being kind of a young adult under, you know, your parents to really being self-sustaining and starting your own family and all that. Uh, would you have any advice for someone who's looking to figure out what they're passionate about or what they should do with their lives? Is the answer just kind of start, you know, get that shotgun and just kind of start anything or? Well, a um, couple things. First of all, 
you're going to be a standout if you do that. If, if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're going to do something different and you're going to break out, especially when you're that age, everyone around you is going to tell you not to do it, right? Because they're trying to find their own way and they're trying to find it the traditional way. Mm-hmm. And, and it was the same for me, right, back then. And I realized they didn't mean anything by it. They weren't trying to be negative. But me breaking out and stepping out of the box was actually a threat to them. Mm. because they're going to go the traditional route. And if if you could actually go the other route and be successful, that kind of shakes them up a little bit. So yeah. they they kind of prefer I just go the traditional route too. Yeah. Right? And they're also worried about me. Of course. Right? You know, oh my gosh, you know, do you really want to take those risks? I learned early on that as soon as people started to tell me, oh, you can't do that or don't do that, oh, I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. This is something I have to pursue, right? Mm. And pretty much, Many, I could just say many, many things I did, even small things like, you know, trading the dune buggy for the airplane. That'll never work. Oh, good. I'm glad you feel that way. Mm-hmm. It's going to work. Yeah. Right? Let me, I'm going to double yeah. down my efforts You're not going to do it? Fine. I'm going to do it. Too tough for you? Just right for me. Right? Uh-huh. We'll get it done. Now, it doesn't work out every time, but you just, you have to be w- willing to take risk. All right? So what I'm going to say to that that person who's in that, in that crossroads and at that age is um, take risks. But don't be stupid about it, right? Again, we're in a world where you can make a living and still take risks. You don't have to choose one over the other. That's There's fair. so many things you can do today and, and just work somewhere and get by while you're going out and doing your entrepreneurial things on the side. There's so many things you can do entrepreneurially that don't require that you're doing it 8 to 5 Monday through Friday. Just be willing to do more than everybody else. Don't expect that you can – you can put school and work and all your entrepreneurial entrepreneurial ventures into six hours a day mm-hmm. and then go play the rest of the time. There is a sacrifice to be made. Basically, you have to do more than everybody else around you is willing to do and cram as much of it into as short a period of time as you possibly can in order to, to reap the rewards that most people will never reap because they're not willing to pay the price. Mm. I guess – what I'm saying is don't expect success without paying the price. But if you're willing to pay the price, there is a way through. That's powerful. That's that's really true. Let me take it up a notch. Okay. And this is really a selfish question here a okay. little bit. So um, I – I have maybe I'm, and I don't know if you describe it this way, but I'm hearing a little bit of kind of entrepreneurial ADD. You know, you are willing to you you yeah. come up, you have an idea, you have you're passionate about something, you see a need in the market, right? The shoe product, you have a vision of something that you want to do, whether it's flying or the co-working space or your experience, and and I'm using co-working space you know sure. loosely, but yeah. um, you know, you have these things, and then you and I can imagine you probably start. You think of an idea and then you start clicking through things that, based on your experience. Well, then there's the demand and how to get the supply and you start piecing things together. So at the point and, – and um, that's very much – that's that's me all day long. Okay. Uh, I'm definitely less operations and more visionary. I'm not afraid to work hard at all. Right. But I am the guy that you want starting the company. And I'm just discovering this about myself. Yeah. Starting and, and pu- putting everything together. But I'm not the – the president or the CEO maybe that oh, is oh, there for 30 years. Okay. I'm glad you asked that question. How old are you now? 29. Okay. So when I was about your age, 25 to 29, right in that area, I was trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with me mm-hmm. because, <laughs> you know, I couldn't stop the ideas and, you know, 
going back and forth and picking one thing after the next. And it was good and it was exciting, but it was also agonizing. And all my friends thought I was nuts. For context, where are you in any of those businesses that we... Um, this is a time where I was probably going in and out of various things. The printing business got my pilot's license. Are you married? So, uh, got married when I was, I met Rachel when I was 26. We got married when we were 29. So okay. we Similar were together, to, okay. but not quite married yet. Yeah. But we were definitely together. Kids you know? yet? No kids. We got uh, kids when I was 32. Okay. Yeah. But, um, and I met Rachel in high school. So we're the same age. But anyway, um, you know, just kind of going through all that. And then I, I used to read Success Magazine. It was a little different then than it is today. It's gone through several different iterations. Still a great magazine. But back then, it really was just stories of entrepreneurs and, you know, various things. And there was a, there was a guy who was a contributing author, and I'd, I'd like to think of his name, but he one of the things he did was Formula 409. He rescued that company, you know, the, the spray cleaner. Oh, yeah. He rescued yep, that yep, yep. company from disaster and turned it into a major enterprise, and he'd done a lot of other things. But he wrote a book called For Entrepreneurs Only. And I bought that book, and I thought, thank you. Somebody has finally explained why I'm such a whack, <laughs> right? Because it's <laughs> what entrepreneurs are. And one of the things he talked about was there are business people and there are entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. right? Joe opens a dry cleaning business. And he's a good dry cleaner and he cares. And uh, he's been able to get out of having a job because he's a dry cleaner. But he works early and he works late. And he, he loves his family. And he goes to all the soccer games and he sponsors the local you know, team. And he's part of Rotary and he's part of Toastmasters and everything else. And that's his life. And it's a very successful, fantastic life. Pete starts a dry cleaning business. He goes through the same thing, gets it up and running, and then he opens another one and another one, and then he buys three over here, rebrands it, franchises it. He's an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So they're both business owners, but they're not necessarily entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. right? Those of us who are entrepreneurs are very different than most people. We think differently. You said entrepreneurially, ADD is probably a pretty appropriate, you know, idea. We're wired differently. We think differently than most people. And, and it's important for us to be able to find each other and mm -hmm. have discussions like this because most of our friends and family that we know and grew up with are not entrepreneurs, and therefore they just can't relate. Mm -hmm. One of the things that he said in that book that's so important is that entrepreneurs are the right people to build businesses, but they're the wrong people to run businesses. Mm -hmm. So when you just said, hey, you know, I feel like I'm the guy who's supposed to get the business going, but... I don't really feel like I'm the one that should run it. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And I read that when I read that book, I understood it. For entrepreneurs only. It's called For Entrepreneurs Only. It's okay. probably, you know, 25 years old or more, but it's absolutely relevant. Perfect. And it helps you to really understand if you are an entrepreneur. I mean, it really was nice. It was a nice read and it was welcome at the probably time. Probably relieving because you were just like very much so. Yeah. But it but that is true. You know, we are builders, we're visionaries. Um we don't want to be stuck in an office nine to five, Monday through Friday, uh, running a company for 10, 15 years. We want to go back and do another one. Mm -hmm. Very true. So that leads me to my second question, which is, if you're going to do that, the only way that you can do that successfully and not be someone who's just, um, you know, actually like a 
kid, you know, you picture with ADHD or something, just kind of running everywhere and right. maybe maybe doing a bunch of things unsuccessfully mm-hmm. and always having things peter out. What you have to do is you have to be very good at dialing into your skill set, figuring out what component of starting it and kind of launching it do you need to be good at and then bring the right people. But I would argue the people that you ha- you must have around you are the people that are going to support that cycle. It's a really hard one. This is one of my other rules is um, whenever possible – in, an inter- in, in anything that I'm building, I try and do it without employees, mm-hmm. at least to begin with. Um, so this is my question right here. There you go. Okay. You have to do it eventually. You can't mm-hmm. build anything substantial without employees. And we all need people. I mean, this business, we have lots of employees. If we're going to have a 1,000 stores, we're going to have a lot of employees, right? But when you're an op- entrepreneur, when you go to duplicate yourself by hiring an employee, you think you're going to get twice the work done. The reality is an entrepreneur does so much work and wears so many hats, it's the 80-20 rule again, right? The person you hire is going to operate at 20% of your capacity. Mm-hmm. You have to hire five people to replace yourself, mm-hmm. right? That's a hard one. Yeah. But that's the reality. And, and it's, there's nothing wrong with that because you can't expect somebody who's working for you and it's their job and they have a different life their job is not their life to operate at the same intensity and efficiency that you are mm-hmm. but it's a hard lesson to learn it's probably even pretty presumptuous you know yeah. to even think that and, exactly. and absolutely i i respect that a lot but also i know like to get to be able to start and really scale into the companies that you talked about and whether right. it's this company here and you have you know multiple employees or if you go the franchise model or whatever that may be a little bit different but sure. again you know you're dealing with quality control regardless of what it is sure. whether it's franchise or it, not and and it depends on the business mm-hmm. but there are a lot of things that you can do that you can build a successful business on your own you don't have to do it now mm-hmm. we all want to build businesses that have employees it's you know it's what we do uh, create jobs entrepreneurs create jobs but you just you just need to be aware of when you cross that line. It's a big line to cross. And depending on what the business is, I have always tried to do businesses that literally could be a one-man show until I've proven it. Mm-hmm. And then I can go ahead and invest in you know, bringing on employees or duplicate it, et cetera. Mm. So even – I guess what's the point? Like if you were going to give someone advice, what is the point in a business that maybe you've seen some success – sales are starting to come in and you feel like it's time to take someone on, would you delay that absolutely as long as possible? Or when you start feeling that, would you say, okay, it's time to bring in a little bit of help in one capacity or another? I think if you're honest with yourself and uh, you're beyond your own to the point where if you don't bring somebody on, it's going to negatively affect the business, Mm -hmm. um, then that's probably the time to do it. But if you're if you're just feeling a little lazy mm-hmm. and uh, would like to just have a little more beach time, then maybe you could go a little farther. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay. <laughs> cool. I'm going to have some more questions for you later on that. Okay. But but I love it. Well, Don, thank you so much. We're kind of at the hour mark here. Absolutely. Um, there's so much more that we could get into. And I mean, we didn't even really talk uh, about the French Valley Flying Circus. Sure. Um, uh, there's so much more, and, and maybe we can have you back on here at oh, some point. I'd be happy point. to do it. But this has been really fun. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks for having us in your space. Thanks and for having me. If anyone's looking to find out more about you, any of your different enterprises, kind of give us some uh, some good places to find you, the, the footwear, um, 
Flying Circus, if anyone's in the market for renting yeah. a slingshot. Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. You did. Uh-huh. And uh, Parlay is parlay.cafe. Mm-hmm. And FrenchValleyFlyingCircus.com. JackedUpFootwear.com. Awesome. So online, any of the contact forms, mm-hmm. you're going to be talking directly to this guy because, yeah. you know, <laughs> anti-hiring the people. Well, <laughs> just, you know, just when when the time is right, right? You, and you want to make sure it's right for them too. Uh-huh. Excellent. Okay. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. Uh, Everyone, thank you so much for listening. And this has been really fantastic. I I know I've learned so much and I hope you all take a lot of value from it. So uh, we will see you in the next episode. What's up, podcast people? Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I would absolutely love to hear your perspective and opinions on the topics we covered today. So uh, if you're interested in giving me a shout, go ahead, head on over to Instagram at John O'Amen is my handle. That's J-O-N-O-A-Y-M-I-N. And you can send me a direct message or interact with me on my stories. I'm pretty active on that profile. So uh, you can definitely reach me there. I also have a website. So if you head on over to www.jonathanamon.com, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-A-Y-M-I-N.com. You can go and read more about me and see some of the other content that I'm putting out as well as uh, some of the companies I run and just basically see what I'm up to. So anyway, thank you so much again for your time and uh, I hope you have a kick-ass day.